Welcome to the Leading Deeply podcast. I'm Dr. Joe Albert, coach, consultant, and teacher interested in storytelling and helping people thrive. And I'm Dr. Beck Burson, a physician and psychiatrist fascinated by neurons and narratives and how people change. Thanks for joining us at Leading Deeply, a space to get curious how individuals and organizations address the undeniable desire we all have for meaning, purpose, and belonging. We want to know how leaders and those aspiring to lead can engage and animate these human needs to cultivate flourishing. Hello and welcome to Leading Deeply. I'm Dr. Joe Albert and with me is Dr. Beck Burson. And today our topic is about finding meaning in our work and our lives. And we are very excited to have a guest that uh, has become really nationally known for her focus on uh, spirituality and psychology and feel very fortunate to have this opportunity to explore these concepts with her. So Beck, you've reached out to her and I'll invite you to introduce her. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. Well, I am beyond stoked today that we have Dr. Lisa Miller joining us. And she is a fantastic guest for this first show that is unpacking meaning. Um, as we introduced in our last episode, we're going to be focusing on meaning, purpose, belonging, and we're jumping right in with meaning. And this first tenet of meaning that we really want to focus on is transcendence. I was sort of putting out the vibe to find somebody that could speak to this. And I remember I was up at Silver Mountain, my girls were asleep, and I just happened to read the NPR um, Enlighten Me, and I was astounded by what I was reading because it's what I have felt for a long time as a psychiatrist and with my husband being a chaplain, but there was real science to back up um, decades of research showing how important spirituality is for mental health. So we have an expert on the topic of transcendence and its scientific impl implications, and we're going to be exploring how this might translate to organizational health and leadership. So I want to welcome Dr. Lisa Miller. Dr. Lisa Miller is the New York Times bestselling author of The Spiritual Child and The Awakened Brain, and she's a professor in the clinical psychology program at Teachers College, Columbia University. She's the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind-Body Institute, the first Ivy League graduate program and research institute in spirituality and psychology, and she's held over a decade of joint appointments in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical School. Her innovative research has been published in more than 100 peer-reviewed articles, including the American Journal of Psychiatry. She's a graduate of Yale University and University of Pennsylvania, where she earned her doctorate under the founder of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, and has served as principal investigator on multiple grant-funded research studies. Without further ado, I want to welcome you, Dr. Lisa Miller. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so honored and excited to be in conversation with you both, Joe and Beck. Thank you for including me. And you know, there's so much to share in our time together, whether it has to do with the spiritual capacity within us, whether it's how we might treat each other in relationship or how we might have our communities and organizations. But 
no matter what level we're looking at of our spiritual impact and way of being, it comes from the same deep seat of perception, our natural inborn awakened brain. Every one of us, just as we're born with a physical, emotional, cognitive life, we are born inherently with a spiritual life. It is hardwired in every single baby on earth. And in fact, there is one spiritual brain and we all have it. So am I a spiritual being? Am I spiritual? People ask me and the answer is yes, we are all spiritual. This conversation that we're about to have pertains to all of us. Well, I can't wait to further this dialogue and really honor that there is this connective source and even just wanting this connective source to be present in our dialogue as we listen and learn and get curious and try to push these thoughts forward. I'm wondering, could we do a practice, a brief practice, so that we're not talking about the awakened brain, but rather welcome everyone into their own awakened brain? I love that. Let's do it. Will you lead us? Beautiful. I'd be honored. I'm going to invite you, this is a 90-second practice, to close your eyes, clear out your inner space, five breaths. I invite you to set before you in your inner chamber, set before you a table. This is your table. And to your table, you may invite anyone living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. Anyone living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that is so much more than anything you may have or not have, anything you've done or not done, your true eternal higher self. And ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power, whatever word is yours, God, Jesus, the universe, source, however you know your higher power, and ask if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting here right now, what do they need to share what do you need to know? What do they need to tell you now and share? And when you're ready, I invite you back. This is your counsel and they are always there for you. Who shows up may change depending on where you are in your road of life. And you can ask what is on your mind, on your heart. Those who truly have our best interest in mind, our highest self and our highest power. These are all forms of relational spirituality. These are living transcendent relationships. And we are built to be in transcendent relationship. We are built to know that we are loved and held. We are guided. 
and we are never alone. This is a practice that was taught to me by the late Dr. Gary Weaver. I always thank my teachers. And he used this practice to help people who have felt cut off return to their birthright. Thank you so much for that. It's such a beautiful practice. And when I read your book and it had the description of that exercise, um, it was profound. So much so that I have used it with my patients lots of times. <laughs> and um, we just did a seminar on psychology and leadership and it was about 30 people and we were contrasting the achieving brain and the awakened brain, looking at the awakened organization. And we had the class do that exercise and there were lots of tears. You know, I remember one person saying what she heard was you're incredible and you always have been, you know, you, you have been here the whole time. Why haven't you seen yourself, you know? Um, and it, it brings this, this idea of the interconnectedness and what that has to do with meaning. As I know, you guys know, Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, observed that those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And this why has to do with meaning. And I want to cultivate a conversation about how we might go about finding our way, trying to find what matters and the importance of transcending to something beyond ourselves, kind of like when we navigate on a ship and we use the stars to help find our way, that we are able to connect to that source. And just in the nick of time, um, through the website with Leading Deeply, um, I got an email this morning. And I just wanted to read it because I thought it framed so well. It says, why do I believe that certain things really matter? To me, it all comes down to being connected to source. And this is just from somebody who resonated with the, the work we're putting out there. They said, it's a feeling that arises from within. And makes me feel grounded and alive and full of life. But there are psychological influences of society that cloud my connection to source. If I could better recognize what this cloud is that gets in the way and have more faith in the connection to source, then I might more often lead with charisma, purpose, direction, and passion. I might even change careers. And I thought, wow, what a great way to frame um, how important meaning and transcendence and spirituality and source is in this process. Dr. Miller, I was wondering if you could share with us how you first personally and or professionally became curious about this pursuit of spirituality and how it has helped you find your way, helped others find their way, how it might have something to offer us. In the air and water of our culture directly to the point of your colleague, there is a illusion of radical control that we're somehow narrowly makers of our path only. 
that if I get something, it's only because I earned it. And if I don't, it's only because I failed. And this illusion of radical control, of course, we have some control. Of course, we need to you know, strengthen and prepare ourselves and have strategies and tactics in life. But that alone does not control life. Right? So when it comes to finding meaning, the corollary is that somehow we're supposed to figure out meaning, put it together in like a package in our hand, have discovered package and carry forward meaning. But what if meaning isn't really a one-liner or even enough to fill a book? What if meaning is not something that's found and owned, but actually a stance in living, a way of being in the world, a walk? a meaningful walk. Um, and what I've seen over the past 25 years of work as a clinical psychologist, as a clinical scientist, is that we are not necessarily narrowly makers of our paths, but we are more discoverers of our journey. That we are built, hardwired built, to not just strategize and tactically figure things out. What is my meaning and how am I gonna implement it and how am I gonna live it? but rather go on what I would call a quest and that our lives are even a sacred quest in which meaning is each day discovered and that meaning is not necessarily simply what we make of things or impute with our appraisals of life, but that meaning actually lives in the fabric of reality, that life is not you know, a blank slate onto which we paint our meaning, but that there is literally meaning built into life. And that way of living, door number two, treating life as a quest, is one in which we engage our awakened brains, where we ask a question of the head or hit an impasse in life and say, why on earth is this happening to me? Why did I just lose my business? Why did my spouse just walk out on me? Why did I not get that bonus? What went wrong? And instead of thinking narrowly about how I could have done things differently, ask a much bigger question that we're actually equipped to ask and answer which is what is life showing me now? What is life revealing to me now? What is my higher power even leading me to see and become in this moment? It's a way of being in which we're in dialogue with life. I have such a gift. That's such a beautiful invitation to be practicing what you're talking about, this quest, this way of looking at meaning as revelatory if we're looking for it. Yes, beautifully put, meaning as revelatory, built into life, I would say, my word is God, guided and held. But whether you say source or life, or if you're from a faith tradition, Jesus, Hashem, Allah, whoever walks by your side and points the way through one another to yellow doors, this is a transcendent walk. It is one that meets transcendence and imminence in every step of our lives. It's meaning as discovery, meaning as revealed, meaning as a way of being open to what is God showing me now? What is life asking of me now? Hmm. So I don't know what my life will look like, but I'm absolutely excited about this adventure, even when it hurts sometimes. Hmm is an incredible sacred adventure an incredible sacred adventure wow i love that 
We've talked about the yellow door. And if I remember correctly from your book, The Awakened Brain, there is a beautiful exercise about a red door and a yellow door. Would you mind bringing us through that exercise? I think our listeners would really benefit from that. I'd be honored. This is another 90-second practice. Open up your inner chamber. I invite you to locate a time where you did everything right to get that red door, and you wanted that red door. It could have been a promotion, a job, an internship, admission to a school, him, her, them to say yes. That red door you wanted so badly that you prepared, you researched it, you prepared yourself tactically, you were strategically right, the red door A plus B plus C, that's your red door. And you step up having done everything right, you grab the handle, you turn it, but it's stuck. And you can't believe the red door stuck because you have done everything right, A plus B plus C. You kick the door, you're maybe shocked in time, angry or depressed. But only because the red door is stuck, you have no choice. You turn 20, 40, 100 degrees. And over there, over there is a wide open yellow door. A shining open yellow door. You might have said yellow doors don't exist. You hadn't heard of yellow doors. On the other side of the yellow door is someone more right for you. Is a job that made you feel alive, that brought forward talents you didn't even know you had. Was a mentor who saw you, who you could be beyond what you knew in yourself. Was the school that opened doors that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today. That yellow door was not what you had wanted. It was better and better for you. And as you sit back now and you think of that stuck red door and the hairpin turn that took you to the wide open shining yellow door that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today, was there anyone standing there at the hairpin turn? It could have been someone you met for two minutes at the coffee shop or the party. It could have been a counselor, a grandparent, a friend of years who told you a story for the first time. There was information guidance pointing to the yellow door. A trail angel was showing you forward. And as you sit back way now, stuck red door, hairpin turn, trail angel, and wide open yellow door that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today, how really are the most important parts of our lives formed? Is it narrowly through tactic and strategy? Is it exclusively through radical control? Or are we less makers of our lives and more discoverers of our journey? Are there times in life when we are in dialogue with a process that may be guided, that may be supported, helping us to realize that which we have yet to even imagine? 
because tactics and strategy only are historical information, what we think we want today based on yesterday's experience. But the yellow door has information we've yet to discover. And so finally, as you sit way back, stuck red door, hairpin turn, trail angel, wide open yellow door that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today. Where in your road of life is God? Where is your higher power? Where is the source? Is the source of life, your higher power, in the wide open yellow door and the stuck red door? Is your higher power in the trail angel and your capacity to be an open system in dialogue with the deeper force in us, through us, and around us? Is it possible that you have been on a spiritual path all along? All along. And when you're ready, I invite you back. I really like it. it there's a, a fellow named Bruce Feeler who wrote a book called Life is in the Transitions, and then Mary Catherine Bateson wrote Composing the Life, and, and a number of other books, but it's all about how life doesn't turn the way we expected it to, um, <clears throat> and this aligns so beautifully with that, and I use that a lot when I'm in storytelling, because none of us <coughs> are doing what we thought, thought we would do, and that's part of that discovery process, I think, you know. That's that's what occurred to me as we were doing both those visualizations. I mean, that was that's pretty powerful stuff, you know. And but I love the the discovery. I mean, I just my last my wife died two years ago, and it was just like you know, like stuff happens that you never ever see coming, and and it does open up a whole other path that I never thought I'd walk, <laughs> you know. And um, and and the process. There's something about it that's I don't know if exciting, but but you know, you anticipate what might the gift be in this and um it's a pretty but you articulate it so well so i'm very appreciative of that and the notion of struggle it's that's all part of it so thank you that's that's beautifully put so thanks i'm so sorry to hear of your wife's crossing and i'm wondering you know, what has been revealed or do you feel her with you um somewhat i i think it's for me uh, and i've told people this i I became, and I think as a couple, you become the adaptation to the other person in a lot of ways, you know, 43 years of marriage. And um, and now alone, you know, it's like, okay, then who am I? And that's that's been the last two years, really, is that question. And um, and that that's, it's, it's exciting, it's scary, it's, uh, I'm alone a lot and, and dealing with aloneness, so it doesn't become alone, loneliness. Uh, but the aloneness is is uh, is kind of a new part of the journey for me, and I I, I don't know. I, I it's still waiting. It, it's I was talking to somebody recently, um, Beck's husband actually, and we were talking about. I don't know if I, I can't tell the story yet because it's not it's not done. It's still in process, you know. And and um, you know, Jerome Bruner always talked about turning points, and you, you, they're only known in retrospect. And I, I still feel like I, I'm not sure what what it's going to lead to. I don't know, you know, but it certainly has been an interesting journey. And and then I had a heart attack right after that, about six weeks later, and Sorry. and I died actually. Oh my! Did oh my! Yeah. Do you remember but, it? Pardon? Do you remember it? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, real well. And so a uh, neighbor resuscitated me. I'd already stopped breathing and everything. And so um, and people said, well, did you see anything? I'm like, no. I, You know, but, but, but both sort of took me to a place where I had never been before. And, and uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, but, but this notion of sort of being wired, like, as you describe it, you know, for, for discovering our own meaning, that's really powerful. So that's, I think that's where I'm at, you know, is that process. And, and just reading, you know, your work, it's like, boy, that states it so well and um, articulates things I probably wouldn't have said. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate that you resonate in the heart. And I, you know, I think that we all have an awakened awareness that comes forward in times of crisis, crisis and transition. Um, it's been there all along, right? And you've already been engaging it in your path. Yeah. And the more that it's engaged along the way, the more it's there in times of crisis. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that these inflection points are understood as a dialogue with spirit or God or source in life. When we're all built for this, but the more we've done it in our daily walk, the more in moments of incredible pain and loss, we are prepared and ready. Yeah, yeah. That feels true. Uh, that really does, you know. And, and one of the, I, I, I've explored a lot the notion of clarity versus certainty. And, and it feels like that, that's, you know, when you talk about the awakened, you know, um, brain and, and the sort of achieving one, there's a, a notion of people seeking certainty. And it's a false promise, I think. It really is, you know. And that notion of clarity is, is really what, I think you you articulate so well is is kind of what we can gain through this journey. You know who we are and what our purpose is and so forth. So, thanks again for that. That was another piece of that that I was, you know, about the awakened awareness. I was like, oh, that's it right there. No, so thank you. Well, and to your point, I think that our awakened awareness is always here for us, but that achieving awareness has been very much strengthened in the air and water of our culture, achieving awareness that we do somehow have illusory certainty, illusory control. If I push the elevator button, I'm going up. But I actually don't know if it's coming in two seconds or 15 minutes, this elevator. I don't know if the car's empty or packed and if someone has a hacking flu. Inside. I don't know what's coming. So the pushing the elevator button is about 2% radical control. And 98%, we're all in dialogue already. Mm -hmm. to actually be awakened to what is life showing me now maybe i should take the stairs <laughs> in every moment um it is a way of saying sometimes taking the stairs spared me the flu sometimes taking the stairs i met someone on the way up who changed my life sometimes life is sending up the stairs and to really use all of our faculties of knowing to intuit what is life showing me now in this moment this one this one right here with you magnificent people. I need to use more than just my radical, strategic, logical, and empirical mind. I've got to use my intuition equally hardwired. I've got at times to engage the gift of a mystical or transcendent experience like we just shared, mm -hmm. the process of awakening our brain together, hosting counsel. Yeah. So all forms of are real and important. They're organic epistemologies. When we can get them working together, ask a question of my heart, 
using my drilling logic, what on earth is happening here? Why is the economy falling apart? Why is my family in a terrible state? And then receive an answer intuitively of the heart or a mystical dream. Bringing the faculties of knowing together is literally taking on a stance of quest. Why is life happening this way? What does my intuition say? Ooh, an incredible mystical experience. What does this mean with discernment in my path as I stand here right now? When we get the knowers at the inner table speaking, we have a more adaptive, creative, innovative brain, and we even myelinate the tracks, pave the highways between regions of the brain. We're built for this. At Horizon Credit Union, community is who we serve, and helping you grow is our goal. Your path is our purpose, and together we can make a positive impact. Whether you're ready for a checking account, a home loan, or a team that cares about your dreams, doing business here does good in the community. Discover the difference and open your account today or find a branch near you at hzcu.org. Horizon Credit Union is an equal housing opportunity lender insured by NCUA. That was real, really a discovery for me, that sense of not being alone. And, you know, um, so that, that was part of it for me, I think. But you have to have that posture of inquiry or openness and, um, and curiosity. And, and those things, I think, can really help save you. So, Oh, that's powerful, Joe. These concepts like prayer are so much more than we think they are sometimes. Well, I'm just loving the dialogue and there's so much texture and fullness to talk about. Um, This idea, when you said, you know, even the myelin sheaths become faster, Um, this idea of connectivity. Um, Yeah, we can look at the science, there's wonderful science, but just more abstractly, this idea that when we realize I am connected to you. I am connected to Joe. I am connected to my patients. I am connected to this world beyond me. How that unfolds the awakened brain. And I did the organizational leadership masters through Gonzaga. And a lot of people were like, why are you doing this? You know, you're a psychiatrist. What does this have to do with what you're interested in? And it was connection. It was trying to figure out how does what happens individually connect to something larger, you know, that we're all part of a context. And um, I just read a book by um, Bowman and Deal, Leading with Soul. And it's um, a couple decades old, but they had revisited it and I just thought, wow, it's more relevant now than it ever has been. They have a lot to say, but this idea that they were going back to this idea of soul or spirit um, and what that means organizationally and to be on a quest as an organization, to have this stance of discovery, um, to be looking for the gifts in the journey. Um, And I was wondering... Dr. Miller, if you could talk about this expectation of finding something of value and synchronicity and how that might translate to not just the individual, but leaders and organizations. 
when we shared the road of life, we all had a trail angel at the hairpin turn. And what I'd like to invite you to allow to come to your heart now is where you have been a trail angel for someone. And this may have been as a consultant, you were also a trail angel or most foundationally a trail angel. It could have been as a boss for your team, you are a trail angel. It could have been as a junior employee in a gracious way, you are a trail angel for your boss. But we are all emanations like rays of the sun of source. We are all loving, holding, guiding, and helping each other along as embodiments of relational spirituality. Just as we are loved, held, guided, we are loving, holding, and guiding. Both are forms of relational spirituality, just as the higher power sat at your council table. So did those who had your best interest in mind as emanations of God, of emanations of source. We are emanations. We are messengers. We are ambassadors helping each other along. The first thing this means is that the spiritual clock always runs. There is never a morally neutral moment, an amoral. I don't mean immoral. I mean amoral. It doesn't count. No, it all counts. Everything is a spiritual moment. Every moment is a moment for our awakened brain. Every moment. The second thing is that we all count. So, you know, it's not just a nice thought. The exchange that happened on the bus on the way to work or on the subway or in traffic or at the coffee shop is your day as much as the promotion or the not the promotion or the deal or not closing the deal. So every bit of life counts. It's part of the symphony and we're all players. It all matters. Nothing is superfluous, which means that when the guy at the coffee shop tells you something poignant that touches your heart, grab it, hold it honor it, reflect on it, and then act on it. Which means that when you feel a tug in your heart to say something, perhaps you're being called as a trail angel. And I'll give you an example here. I was grocery shopping for our family at Whole Foods at an organic grocery store. And at this organic grocery store, everybody shows up from central casting dressed healthy, you know, yoga pants and, you know, everything at all fit to the T in the healthy motif. And I am compelled at this, this setting to look into other people's carts and see what on earth are they eating to be so healthy. So, you know, there's, you know, it's in there, coconut based yogurt and lots of kale. And, you know, it, it's fascinating. <laughs> That's really the, you know, the standard, right? That's what the rigor you'd expect. Well, this day, I was standing in line waiting to check out at the Whole Foods and in me, there was a deep call. Say it, tell her she looks healthy. Now, why on earth at Whole Foods when everyone's dressed to look healthy, would you say you look? But I just knew, I was prompted, I was told, tell her she's healthy. And so I looked at her and I looked in her cart and I said, you are so healthy. And the woman in front of me burst out crying. And she leaned forward. It was so moving. And she said, I just started chemotherapy. She said, I had cancer. I had an operation. And I said, and they took it out. The cancer's gone. You, as you stand here now, are healthy. We are called to walk each other along, to walk the walk and 
talk the walk, say it, you know. So that's where we participate in synchronicity. Yes, we are guided and helped by others, but we're also invited to be guiding and holding of others. And we know it. These opportunities open before us like double yellow doors for one another. Oh, I like, you know, one of the, in the book, Bob Chapman, the, uh, the CEO, that little story was because Beck and I are both interested in, you know, we do leadership development and consulting training, whatever. And it was like, I mean, it's beautiful, his stated personal mission, you know, and, um, and I guess my hope is and this isn't really a question. It's more of a hope that this can be somehow something that gets communicated to folks that are in leadership roles, that they would bring that to their organization. And maybe it's maybe it's too much to ask, but it's hopeful when and when you read an example like that, it's like, yeah, this is somebody that's doing it. Well, I think to your point that in every moment we have both transactional and transformational opportunities Mm -hmm. before us that, you know, yes, there is an achieving matter at hand. And yes, there is an awakened matter at hand. Both goals matter, both goals count, and they sustain each other when they work in tandem. So to Bob Chapman's point, every employee is someone's precious child, Mm -hmm. indeed. And Together, we're getting a job done. Both are true. And these two truths can be aligned. And in fact, they really radically fan the fires of one another. So I know, for instance, there's a large financial institution with whom I've worked that said, you know, we have all these junior folks and they come here. There's a lot of cold calling. There's a lot of sales and they get burnt out and demoralized fast. You know, when they can't get out of 100 calls, more than three pickups and maybe one, maybe they get depressed and you know who else gets depressed? The next layer up who's training them. So we've decided that achieving goals enough, achieving goals alone are insufficient to sustain the interest Mm -hmm. of our junior employees, particularly Gen Z. And we now write into our training program, both achieving goals and awakened goals. Mm -hmm. When you sat down with someone today, here's an awakened goal. Did you ask them about their hopes and dreams for their family? Or did you ask them to buy an insurance plan? When you sat down with someone today, did you say what was one of the most beautiful moments of your life? Or speaking to someone 20, 30, 40 years senior to you, what do you know now that you would tell me starting out? What type of awakened deep meat and potatoes of living in this magnificent quest, this adventure we're on, came and quickly they found that employees found so much sustenance from the awakened goals, getting to know clients that of course, achieving goals followed. When someone thinks and knows you authentically care, then sure, they're more willing to buy an insurance plan because they think you have their best interest in mind because you do. And so things that look transactional can actually not just be narrowly transactional. That's actually kind of an empty way to live if it's all we do. Yeah. And a lot of people do live that way. So, Well, I think this is so beautiful how you both are illustrating this transition from scarcity to abundance, from fear to enoughness. And, mm-hmm. you know, that example, I know our listeners might not know the Bob Chapman example, but essentially this company was under a squeeze and instead of laying off a faction of these individuals who had dedicated their life to this organization, 
everybody absorbed it and nobody lost their job. They took voluntary unpaid vacation. They donated it to other people who needed it more and the company survived, so to speak. And then eventually even started to thrive. And this idea when we can calm that primal part of our brain, you know, the amygdala that is freaking out and has this narrative of scarcity and competition and survival, but trying to transition into that more awakened part of our brain where we see that we're all connected and that there's enough. And, you know, as far as just kind of take home points, Dr. Miller, uh, or, you know, and Joe, you know, what, what are some things that our leaders who are listening or those aspiring to lead could practice to try and be an agent of positive change for those around them to access this awakened leadership, this awakened organization, this awakened individual and how it's related to everything. And, you know, like you said, we, we ask people for achieving goals versus awakened goals. There's an intention behind that. We just default to achieving goals, but how do we intentionally integrate more awakened consciousness? I think that when we as leaders realize that there's not winners and losers, these people and those people, but that the body of the organization, we the community are one. That's not just a nice airy-fairy thought. There is literally a level of reality in which we are one. There is a unitive reality. And what happens on the seventh floor to the administrative assistant does affect through the wave of connection, the wave of moral life, the wave of the spiritual connectivity in us, through us, and among us, other people in the organization. Then there's a sense that you know you tweak one part of the web and the whole web moves. It, it's just the reality, the structure of reality. That's a different form of decision-making. And I agree, Bob Chapman did that very beautifully. There's so many beautiful examples when we shift from the illusion of a zero-sum game, you know, that firing Peter leaves money for Paul, that promoting Mary means that Elizabeth is not making the grade. You know, when we move out of a zero-sum way of thinking, instead to the model of kerosene on the fire, that your win is all of our win. There's more light, there's more heat, that, you know, we promote Mary and Elizabeth has a more viable company in which their her paycheck is more certain. You know, there's a sense of knowing that we're part of one fire. That's important. The other place where I think organizations have much to gain through awakened awareness is in realizing that there's not these people and those people, that there is we people, we can have another understanding of DEI. I think DEI has to a large extent failed because it has led to splintered identity politics. DEI has said, you're different than me and I'm different than him. And therefore the relationship between us is a power struggle. That is a radically splintered, atomistic, radical materialist point of view. We are part of one family of life. There's one awakened brain, one human heart, and we all have it. We are a point, I say to my students, and we are a wave at Columbia. We are magnificently diverse, unique, with different GPS coordinates, and 
we're white caps on one ocean, one family of life, one emanation of source. How do we line up being distinct and one, the unit of reality with the reality of distinction? And when it comes to DEI and our capacity to perceive both unit of reality and distinction, we can shift from you know, calling each other out to calling each other in. I want to know you. Tell me about your unique experience. Tell me about growing up at your GPS coordinate in your bio body suit. And I want to know it and feel it at the level of my shared human heart, at the level of my shared awakened heart. That is a sense of deep knowing. It's a sense, you know, in my work with the Pentagon of Army family, it's a sense in my work with faith communities of radical love and acceptance. I don't care where you've come from and what you've done or not done. I love you for walking in the door and I want to know you. It's another way of being. And it's a form of DEI that moves from one of splinteredness and otherliness to a unit of sense of a common awakened heart. It creates a sense of bonding and teamship that is very strong. We'll go to the map for each other. In the level of you know, my work with the Pentagon, the squad is a spiritual unit. That is a form of brotherhood and sisterhood where we will do just about anything to help each other along. Oh, I like that. There's a friend of mine that runs, a, he's a Jesuit priest, but he runs a gang intervention program called Homeboy Industries. It's in Los Angeles. And his notion is really about, you know, when we when we get to know one of these gang members' stories, it's not as easy to demonize them. And and there's a sense of knowing their stories and finding the kinship, the, the common identity we all share and then begin to work together to, you know, and because that notion of categorizing people, like you said, you know, it's, it makes it easier to, to push people aside, marginalize others, you know, and include others, that type of thing. And, um, and, I, and I think the stories we get to know of each other really, there's a bridge there and that's part of this process, I think so. Uh, but thanks. I mean, you just explained it beautifully. That's really helpful. Well, I think you're so wise that story brings us together. The deep human truth in story. It's not an argument. There's no disputing it. That's a true story. And it's one that reveals something in all of us. We're moved by each other's stories because of our common awakened heart. It's so wise that you lead with story. In fact, in my class at Columbia, well, let me put it this way. Our culture has dropped the ball on being spiritually conversant. I think in the attempted good effort to be inclusive, we threw all religion and spirituality out of the public square 40 years ago, and actually threw the spiritual baby out with the bathwater. We became spiritually non-conversant. The other thing that we lost, equally tragic, was we lost great American pluralism where you tell me about Christmas and Easter and I tell you about Hanukkah and my dear friend just wished me the best for Diwali or Ramadan. We lost knowing each other in the deepest way through the universal human heart, the exquisite voice of pluralism, spiritual pluralism. Mm -hmm. So society's grown up in the past 40 years. We've made some gains around inclusivity and knowing each other. Can we add a deliberate effort for spiritual inclusivity to embrace knowing each other mm. in the pluralistic spiritual society to express freely our spiritual heart 
And this is a way back in to a deeper connection where the relationship between people of so-called difference is not one that's antagonistic and what you get, I don't, and what I get, he doesn't, you know, mm. power, pie, but one of love, one of love and collaboration. We are built for love and collaboration every bit as much as we're built for antagonism. It's a choice and it lives at the level of perception. The ailment in our society is a disease of perception. It is not out there. It is, and we can awaken our natural awareness for the unit of reality, the love and bonding that actually is far more powerful. And yes, everybody wins. That's beautiful. That. It's a perception issue. Yeah. Yeah. And so many people try to gain power by, you know, identifying common common enemies and common differences and you know and it's 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 such a cheap way to try to gain influence and power versus i think what you're talking about and what most of us are drawn to which is you know our, our common identity you know i would say the middle 98 <laughs> percent that you know um, governor cox of utah talks about talks the polarization and it's from this tiny little splintered group on the far ends but the wise people you know common sense isn't common because it's low it's common because it's shared mm -hmm. we have a deep shared understanding of connection of love of this is such a decent moral spiritual country we're based on natural rights we hold these truths to be self-evident mm -hmm. you know jefferson's first draft said we hold these truths to be sacred oh really yeah. So natural rights are spiritual. We The spirituality is in the DNA of our country. And who's going to put it back? Every one of us in speaking freely with love and openness from the spiritual heart. Tremendously. Great. Tremendously helpful. I feel like this is, you know, in the, in the field of science, we've identified, published clinical science, that depression is the knock at the door to spiritual awakening, that despair and struggle and even trauma the world as I know it cracks is the gateway to awakening. Mm -hmm. And I think right now as a country, we are having a developmental depression, perhaps even a collective trauma that will open the gateway to a shared awakened awareness where we are realizing that we actually are one. I think this is just phenomenal. And I'm thinking of Rain Wilson's book, Spiritual Boom, you know, where he kind of, references some of the same points and this idea that we are maybe going through this liminal space, this transition into growth collectively and individually and to allow people to feel more comfortable with words like spiritual words, like transcendence, because we don't feel comfortable because it, elicit scarcity. Are you winning? Is your spiritual belief, you know, in the on the winning team? Is mine on the winning team? And are you going to judge me if I say I'm spiritual? Or what does that mean? And um, I just want to thank you that you have dedicated so much academic pursuit in giving great data, so that me as a physician feels empowered to talk to my patients as hey, you know, we've got biological, we've got psychological, we've got social, and we've got spiritual buckets that we can be putting stuff in. 
to try and work towards flourishing. Um, but this idea of being able to talk about the spiritual, both in a medical context, both in a leadership context, and in an everyday context in a way that isn't scary for people, but is empowering and allows us to have that unity, that I and thou relationship that Martin Buber talks about that I know Joe is such a fan of. Um, But yeah, in your work, has there been um, kind of a boldness or a courage in calling it spirituality or has that been pretty natural to just call it what it is? I like the word spirituality because it is exactly what we're talking about. It is transcendent. It is imminent. And every single one of us is inborn as spiritual beings with the capacity to perceive the transcendent and the imminent. So I I like the word and I've never wanted to tiptoe around it because we could lose what it really is, right? Mm -hmm. It's nice to be nice and be compassionate. It's nice to be grateful, but grateful to whom? Mm -hmm. Grateful to God? the higher power, grateful to the source of life. There's an object to the preposition, grateful to whom, right? And I think that's very important because the silencing of spiritual life in the public square, the felt taboo and anxiety about, do I use the word spiritual? That is in our culture. It is absolutely in our culture. Has eviscerated the meaning from our lives. It has eviscerated Mm -hmm. a lived birthright of a sustained connection to our higher power. We're built, every one of us, to be in a sustained, ongoing relationship with our higher power, who I call God. And yet in a public square that has silenced our spiritual knowing, we wait until people bottom out in AA when they've absolutely ramshacked their family, they're in terrible pain, they're addicted. And we say, oh, you know what? You've got to hand it over to your higher power, or we wait until someone's in the throes of trauma, God forbid the death of a child. And we say, oh, you've got to hand it over to someone bigger than yourself. It is only in moments of a 52 card pickup. And yet from the day we're born, we're built to be in a sustained, ongoing, transcendent relationship with our higher power, who I call God. What this means is that minus this certainty, this shared honoring and validation of the knowing of the sacred transcendent, we're walking with an illusion of meaninglessness. We're walking with our eyes gouged out to seeing this presence in us, through us and around us of love and guidance. That is, you know, walking a tightrope over a moat with alligators. Who would want to live that way? And it's entirely at the level of our very splintered partial perception. We did it to ourselves. We did it by silencing spiritual life in the public square. So the first thing we can do to reawaken the fullness of who we are and to strengthen the spiritual core in the whole person is to give voice to our natural spiritual awareness. And when we do, it opens the doors of awakening in those who walk by our side, the people at work, our families, even in a way that is inclusive and appropriate and constitutional in public spaces. How do we do that? Speak in the first person of my spiritual life for me and be interested in your spiritual path for you. In my class at Columbia, we have three rules when we talk about spiritual life. Speak in the first person for me, have radical interest in listening in the story of your fellow travelers in life, your journey group, your classmates, as they tell you stories of their spiritual life. 
It's not a theological debate. I want to know you. And finally, radical love. I love you and I want to know you. Those are very transferable rules. Speak in the first person, radical listening, not a debate to someone else's spiritual truth and full, complete embrace of love. We can absolutely do that. Those are actionable ways to live out an awakened society, an awakened business. It's an awakened walk in life. Mm. Well, that's beautiful. You've been so generous in sharing your time and thoughts and love with us. And um, I'm just very grateful. Are there any closing remarks, Joe or Dr. Miller, that you'd like to leave our listeners with? If I were to look at the science, which is now 25 years of published peer review science, I would say there's two findings that are most important. The first is that despair is the gateway to spiritual awakening, and our brain is built for this. When we looked at people who, in times of profound depression, awakened to the presence of God, their higher power, felt a deeper sense of connection with all life, we noticed that there was a change. There was a thickening of the cortex in their brain, processing powers, the cortex across regions of the parietal, precuneus, and occipital perception, reflection, and orientation, which means when depression beckons us into spiritual awakening, we strengthen the perceptual capacities of our brain, which once formed turn out to be neuroprotective against a recurrence of depression over the next 10 years. Depression is a knock at the door for spiritual awakening. And when the brain strengthens to see into the deeper level of life, we are protected against a subsequent bout of depression. Certainly rain does fall. We don't get what we want. Trauma comes our way, but we have now built a spiritual response to suffering. We can see the stuck red door, kick it hard. It was not what we wanted, but know that God has a wide open yellow door for us. And even listen for trial angels. Mm. We are protected against depression. And the second finding from science that's important is that once we strengthen our awakened awareness, there's nothing in the clinical or social sciences as profoundly protective against the current epidemic of the diseases of despair. A strong spiritual core, meaning a standard deviation above as compared to below the mean and a tendency to say, I turn to my higher power for guidance in times of difficulty. When I have a tough decision to make, I ask what really does God want me to do? That's a lived transcendent relationship. Standard deviation above as compared to below the mean is associated with an 80% decreased relative risk of addiction. 70% decreased relative risk of really the back door of the diseases of despair, taking risks, driving 90 miles an hour, jumping out the second story window at a party. And to the most acute side of our epidemic right now, suicide, the rate of death by suicide rivals the rate of death by auto accident in high school and is pushing down into middle school. It's not by COVID or cancer. It's by our own hand that kids die in high school. There's an 82% decreased relative risk of completed suicide when spiritual life is shared, shared in the fellowship, sangha, minion, army, family, squad, community service group. 
in an inclusive and constitutional way in the classroom, when spiritual life is shared, shared in the business, shared in the public square, in a way, again, that invites pluralism, knowing one another with our universal spiritual awakened heart. So what does this mean? It means that when we allow our spiritual awareness back into our businesses, when we honor multiple ways of knowing, when we invite pluralistic expression, loved and understood through the universal awakened heart, we have a healthy, functional company, society, school, country. So what I hope is we can work together to reawaken our country because we are at the point, an inflection point of a whole new era. Let it be one that's awakened. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah, that's, I'm, and you're a gift to us. Thank you. Um, at my wife's funeral, the priest, a friend of ours that did the, um, the service said, he looked up at the, you know, the stained glass and the light was shining through. And he said, that's what, you know, there's some people in our lives that are like that stained glass that allow the light to come through. And that's how this feels this time with you. So, um, yeah, it's a real gift. I deeply appreciate this time. And Beck, thank you for making the connection. And, uh, gosh, this is, this has been a real treat for both of us. So I'm very touched and honored and grateful for both of you and for your being voices of awakening and spiritual renewal in our country. Our country is ready to go. We just need torchbearers and your torchbearers. Thank you. Thank you. Where can people find you, Dr. Miller? Oh, I welcome people to connect on Instagram. It's simply ampersand dr. Lisa Miller. Dr. Lisa Miller. Absolutely. I'll share this on our Instagram. I have an Instagram team. Um, awesome. And I invite people to try out these practices in the awakened brain. In the awakened brain is the science, stories, and also these practices and others for their own process of awakening. Such a good book. And we recommend it to everybody. Well, thank you so much. We hope you have a, a lovely day and I hope our paths cross again. And listeners, thank you for being with us today. Um, wonderful, wonderful session. Uh, great segment. Um, next up, uh, we're excited. Um, some of you may have read uh, the work of Sally Helgeson, who years ago wrote a book called The Female Advantage and the Web of Inclusion, and more recently, uh, Women Rising. But um, she'll be our next guest uh, for our next segment. Uh, she was cited in Forbes as one of the world's premier experts on women in leadership, best-selling author, and inducted into the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame. Um, Sally is just a remarkable individual who's, I think, whose time with us, I think you'll find absolutely fascinating. So that will be our upcoming segment. Well, I'm really looking forward to having Sally Helgeson on. As far as if you have liked this content, you want to engage at a deeper level, please go to leading-deeply.com. Again, that's www.leading-deeply.com and subscribe to get our newsletter. It will bring you into a conversation that will continue these themes of meaning, purpose, and belonging. Thank you again, Beck, for setting us up today with Dr. Miller. And uh, listeners, thanks for being with us. And hopefully you found the same inspiration that we have found.
and uh, we will see you soon. Thanks.